HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, I'm Joe Campanelli, and this is the inaugural episode of In the Drink, which has everything to do with wine, cocktails, and other beverages, and absolutely nothing to do with golf here on the heritageradionetwork.org. So my goal is to demystify the wine process by hosting a variety of winemakers, sommeliers, bartenders, beverage directors, and people who do great things with all things drink. Um, if you miss the live broadcast, you can always find us archived on heritageradionetwork.org and as a podcast on iTunes. I'm going to jump right into it today because I'm so excited to have Jared Brandt here, who's one of my absolute favorite winemakers of the Donkey and Goat Winery. He's here with us today. Um, but just a little background on Donkey and Goat before we get started. So Donkey and Goat is a family-owned and operated winery located in Berkeley, California. Jared and his wife, Tracy craft their natural wines from Rhone varietals, mostly Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, and um, a variety of other grapes like Grenache Blanc and some off-the-beaten-path grapes. And, uh, and they're in Anderson Valley, Mendocino Ridge, and El Dorado Appalachians. They're named one of the winemakers to watch for 2007 by the great John Bonet of the San Francisco Chronicle, who I read all the time. And Jared and Tracy both trained in France, and their maverick winemaking has helped pave the way for the natural wine movement in California. So excited to have you with us today. Thank you. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, the winery that I, maybe I haven't, um, haven't talked about? Is uh, a natural winery, is that something that you're, you're comfortable with? I actually struggle a little bit with the word natural. Uh, I always try to think of us as trying to let the wine speak for itself and not be manipulative. Uh, the category of uh, natural has got a lot of baggage with it, which often scares me a little bit. But what it does mean for us is I want my wine to be grapes, and we use SO2 sparingly. Sometimes we don't use it at all, and that's it. And the context of that, which is, I think, really important for listeners to understand, 
is a lot of grape. A lot of wine is made with grapes and then numerous other things. And, and we're on the opposite side of that. So I have a friend who works for a, a large American winery and in one of their Australia operations. And he has a wine he sent me that he has 27 ingredients in. And, and we're the opposite of that. We have grapes. Well, how many different ingredients are, uh, are allowed to be in a wine? Uh, I believe the last time I looked, the TTB, which is who controls alcohol in America, there's about 270 additives on their list that are legal. So they can range from color. There's a product called Mega Purple, mm-hmm. which everybody in the natural wine movement hates, but it's actually it's just made from grape skins. I don't know. It's that bad. To enzymes, to uh, uh, copper sulfate, to velocin. So it goes with a spectrum of different things. And so what do you think is the, the biggest asset to making wine with, with fewer ingredients? I, th- I think you get a more soulful wine. The wine will speak to you more often. I think the struggle, like, uh, with very commercially made wines, they taste correct, but they taste soulless. And then uh, natural wine, hopefully, sometimes it won't speak to you. You'll think it's awful. But, uh, but even when you think it's awful, if you take the time to taste it, it'll, there'll be something there that's really honest and authentic. And I think that's really important. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think we're always looking for a connection, uh, especially living uh, in the big city. I'm always looking for a connection to a, a person or a place. And when you have wines that are made in, in that kind of style, it's um, I, I somehow feel a lot more connected to someone. I feel like every ingredient that you add is is taking you one step away from from the person, from the place. Um, would you agree with that with that statement? I, I totally agree with it. And I think it takes you, I mean, a lot of it takes you away from the place specifically. Like I, when you taste a wine and you can't figure out the context of it because it's been manipulated so much, it's really disappointing. Uh, and if you taste a French wine that you can't figure out is from France, it tastes like an American wine or, or some of the super Tuscans to me taste like Napa. It's really disappointing. Like Tuscany is a very special place and why not let it taste like Tuscany? So you said some of the additives maybe aren't so bad. They're a little bit innocuous. But what do you think is the absolute worst? Uh, I've, that's a hard question at some level. I think there's some, I think there's some things that, like, there's a product called Velocin, which is very dangerous, that's added. And I think it's probably the absolute worst to me. The, the, uh, another vintner, Randall Graham, told me he called it the Death Star. He played with it for a little while because it just kills everything in the wine. And I don't think everything should be killed in a wine. A wine should be alive and living. Um, I think, I'm not positive on this, I could be wrong, but just like in the rest of the food industry, I think you're allowed to irradiate wine, and that's probably would be my, the one I found the scariest. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think we, we were talking last night at, um, at Anfora, you came in for a producer night about some of the, the kind of death con five, like uniforms you have to wear just to apply Velocin and yes, it's, you can't, it's a deadly substance. And, And one of the things for our wineries, I have two lovely little girls and we decided early on and we're, it's a small business. My girls are there all the time that they're not going to get into a product and get killed. And so we just eliminated it everything in the winery that's dangerous to them. And I think that's uh, an easy standard to have. Like, make sure if your kids gets into it, they live. Um, maybe they get hurt a little. Um, and sulfur is the one exception to that. I mean, sulfur, if you get a big dose of sulfur, it could be pretty bad. But also sulfur, sulfur stinks. Like, I mean, when you, when you work within the winery, it's really present and prevalent. Um, and so they would never get into it because if they opened a sulfur container, they would close it and walk away. 
You know, sulfur is a really hot topic. It's something that, that people ask me about all the time. I feel like a lot of people think that they're allergic to sulfur. Maybe some of them actually are. Maybe some of them aren't. Um, why do you feel that sulfur is the one thing that you can add to your wine um, and none of the other things you choose? Um, well, I think to make a... If I sold all my wine in San Francisco or in Berkeley, I, we might not use that much. We might stop using sulfur. So... I think when you ship wine, there's just there's inherent stability issues. Like we have found, we use very low sulfur, and our wines don't make it. We have we sell a fair amount of wine in Northern Europe, and we can't ship white whites to Northern Europe. That something goes wrong every time, and I can't. I don't know totally explain. I can't totally explain it, but so I think it's if uh, if we were to. To, I don't think we could get away with not using it across the board. I also think it actually sometimes adds a little to the wine in a nice way, um, which I think is contradictory to a lot of things. We've started to expl- uh, explore with other bacterial control processes. Um, I'm fascinated. I've got a little tiny batch where I added pine resin, which is an antibiotic effectively. Mm-hmm. and um, Just like the uh, Retsina wine? And, like the Retsina and wine, but I'm wondering, I'm, my experiment is could you add so little... Uh, uh, resin that you, you wouldn't be able it wouldn't taste like retsina and would you be able to have a stable wine as a result I, I, I don't know the answer to that yet um, sulfur seems to be a really hot topic I think most people who tell me they're allergic to it are not allergic to it they're allergic to something else in the wine um, and the reason I say that is because they tell me what wines they drink and uh, it, the, the ones that they react to has nothing to do with sulfur probably um, I think people might be, I had a woman tell me for the first time that she was allergic to some red wines, some white wines, and carton orange juice, and I think that probably was a reaction to the Velocin. Um, and so, I don't know. <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about where you make wine. Is it uh, a place that you think it's particularly easy to make low additive wines? Is it challenging? So we make wine, We we after we came back from France, we decided that we weren't going to leave our urban environments. We were just going to make wine there. Um, we made wine in a warehouse in San Francisco for a while, and now we're on our second facility in Berkeley. Um, Berkeley is a great place for us to make wine. Um, we, have effect- we have no air conditioning in our winery because it doesn't get hot in Berkeley. Um, last week when it was very hot in New York, or two weeks ago, our, our ambient temperature, I think, averaged 62 or 63 in the winery. The actual building's a really cool building. It was a uh, an ink factory. It was where they made um, varnish. So it has uh, very high ceilings. We have huge windows on the top of the ceilings so that you get natural light. And then the walls and the ceiling is made of concrete, so it's temp- temperature is very, very stable. We have one big fan. If, it, if When it does get hot at night, we open a back door and we turn on the fan, and um, it'll cool it off. Uh, I think the urban environment probably, I don't know, that has anything to do with natural winemaking. I don't think it makes it easier or harder. I do think living in Berkeley, like my wife and I have been a little bit isolated in a sense from the rest of the winemaking community because we're, we're busy with a family and we've always just done our own thing. And I think there's some downsides to that, um, but there's a lot of upsides. Like we don't follow, I don't think we follow trends because we don't often know about them or we're not that influenced by it. Um, I, I often joke that we spend more time talking about vintner, talking with vintners in Italy and France than we do in America. So if we are following trends, it's probably somebody there who gave us an idea, not here. So who are some of your favorite vintners in Italy and France? 
Um, well, I really like Eric Texier, who I work for. I think he's, he makes brilliant wine, and I really like his... Uh, he, like us, came from technology before he switched into the wine business, and so he doesn't have a lot of the preconceptions of the wine business that I think if you go to winemaking school, you end up having. Um, Eric Texier, the leading natural winemaker in the Rhone Valley. I don't think he would actually say he was a natural winemaker. Really? He's certainly often grouped in that, yeah. in that category. Um, he has groupies that would definitely say that. Yeah. Um, but uh, he uses technology in interesting ways. Like he makes a white, a sweet white wine, and um, which is a challenging thing to do because you have to stop fermentation. And he's doing it now with what I call the ice cream maker, but it's, it's really a, effectively, a, uh, it's a spinning device that, so you can cool the wine down below freezing and kill off all the yeast. Um, without, but he doesn't want to add anything, and I don't, I don't think that falls under the conception of natural winemaking. I don't think so. I, I heard about a very interesting um, experiment that he did, where he tested the sulfur levels in several wines, uh, where people claimed that they didn't add any sulfur, and uh, he found that maybe people weren't quite as genuine with with that. So he, it was uh, in, uh, it was actually, we, there's a great wine show in Italy called Vinatura. And, and that happened to be the year we were pouring there. And he has a little device from Merck, which you can't buy in America, that lets you do a bunch of winemaking tests on the fly, and it's highly accurate. And uh, yes, he found that many numerous sulfur-free wines were, in fact, not sulfur-free. So I don't. I would never. It's funny for um, uh, us. I would never label a wine sulfur-free. The legal meaning of sulfur-free is means it has less than ten parts per million of uh, SO two. And I think if you were really allergic to sulfur and that could still impact you. And so I don't, Mm -hmm. and so, and you never have, uh, at least on one of the wines he tested, I think there might've been sulfur in the soil in the vineyard. And that might've been part of what threw off the reading. Um, but I don't know. And yes, it was, it was a really interesting experience because I think a lot of people's, uh, ideal, their, their ideal, I, uh, their image of people was suddenly broken. Like yeah. they, they thought that these people were great and it was suddenly broken. And I think that's just a, I mean, it's a hard thing. I think if you're, uh, you know, wineries are businesses and that's why I, I think I don't like the term natural right now is the marketers are taking it over. And as soon as they take it over, they, it loses what little meaning it already has. So, and if you were to drink American wines, you know, it's, it's wines like yours that I'm getting really excited about from the States. Um, they're they're going to be featured on our list at the new restaurant, La Picho. Uh, but we're going to have these American wines that are that are made by hand, small production. Uh, what kind of American wines are you drinking right now? So we drink, uh, we have a friend, Chris Brockway, and, and, and then our area of Berkeley, there's, Chris has a little winery. We have a, we have a bigger winery than Chris does, and we have Trumer uh, beer, and the three of us trade alcohol constantly. Um, so we definitely uh, drink a lot of Chris's wines. Um, Hank um, with La Clarion Farms is uh, another wine that I'm really excited about. I think he's doing really interesting stuff, and I think he's really authentic. Like some of his vintages, I think he's unhappy with, but he'd rather be unhappy with them than try to make it something that it wasn't. Uh, so I'm really excited by his his wines. Arnold Roberts. I mean, there's a whole bunch of... When we started, we were, everybody told us we were doing things wrong. And it's really... It's a huge fundamental shift in California to where they may not agree that we're doing things right, but they're at least taking the time to understand what we're doing and not just labeling it wrong before they know. 
And when was there a, a change? I mean, because now it seems like your wines are, are embraced and I've seen them at great restaurants. And do you think that there was a, a marked change that at some point people started embracing them? Was there something you can point to? I think, uh, I don't know the actual like time or date. I think it's been a subtle shift. Probably, f- I would guess like, I mean, there was no single event. I mean, it's funny for me because I, sometimes I remember when we first launched, we had a really wacky label um, uh, that w- my friend did. It was, um, he wanted, he tried to convince us to use uh, a woodcut press and, um, and we did it and it was kind of a disaster. Um, but no one, people wouldn't accept our wines at all. They wouldn't even really want to taste them. And part of it, I think, is our name. But um, there's been a total shift. I actually think a lot of it was led by the old guard of Psalms leaving uh, in San Francisco. You can sometimes see it where someone who's been at a restaurant for 20 years and is a great person, but they know what sells, where they don't have to work very hard at selling it. And then they leave, and some 25-year-old from New York comes and who's really, really passionate and excited about wine and is willing to try anything and is really willing to share that passion with their customers. Because I think it's really different when you go up to a table... Uh, in like a fine dining restaurant and you're like, this is the greatest wine ever, that you're excited to try it and your context is, and, you, and they might tell you it's really different, don't expect, you know, it's not going to be a California Chardonnay with lots of oak, it's something totally different and then they, when they taste it, they, they get that different experience and they're excited. Um, I think the new, I think John Bonet, who we were talking about earlier, or you were mentioned in the intro, had a big impact on it because he's really enthusiastic about uh, people experimenting I mean, it's always a funny thing to me. Uh, you're in California, the leading technological innovator in the whole world at this stage. Like, everybody uses Facebook. Everybody has their iPhone and all, ex- all that. And people embrace everything. And then at the same time, and the wines, until recently, they're like, ah, I want to drink the same thing I drank 15 years ago. Like, they didn't want to ever experiment. And now that that's just shifted. And I, and I can't exactly tell you why. Well, on that note, I'm not 25 anymore, but I'm still a New York sommelier, so I'm really eager and excited to taste these wines. But first, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Jared Brandt here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. And we're back at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Joe Campanelli, and you're listening to In the Drink. And we're here today with Jared Brandt, the winemaker and co-owner of one of my favorite 
domestic wineries, Donkey and Goat Winery uh, from Northern California. And now we're going to taste a few of Jared's wines. This is, we got through the first part and now we get to do uh, the fun part. Um, uh, so Jared, what did you, what did you bring for us today? We, uh, we are going to taste three white wines and we're going to start out. Thank you very much. Uh, by tasting Grenache Blanc, um, I have to correct something you said. My wife is the co-winemaker with me. We share winemaking resp- responsibilities. Um, and I think this first wine, I, I'll just tell you a little bit about the Grenache Blanc. It's uh, yeah, Grenache Blanc is my wife's project. That's why I was thinking of it. She said, when we came back from, to, from France, she's like, I love Grenache Blanc. And I said, yeah, but I hate American Grenache Blanc. Let's not even look at it. And she eventually convinced me, uh, we have several vineyards now, to make a Grenache Blanc that we can have it mineral-driven instead of being big and fat and have it really focus on like the, the perfumey no- nature of the Grenache Blanc and the, and the really interesting flavors for me and Grenache Blanc. So this first wine is from two different vineyards in El Dorado. I think very, El Dorado is like this, it's the, called the gold country because it's where they discovered gold initially in California. It's near Sutter's Mill. And I think it's like this undiscovered wine region because it has really interesting soils. Um, you get a lot of decomposed granite. You get red clay. It has the, the, the vineyard owners there have no idea what they're doing. So you as a winemaker can say, I want to do this. It's a crazy experiment, but they don't understand that it's a crazy experiment. So they'll say yes. And suddenly you have something that no one else has done in the world. And um, so I think it's really a really fun area. This wine in particular I'm really excited about. 2011 was a very... Um, cool year, um, which enabled us to make some really uh, wines with the alcohol levels that we're really interested in. Because we don't manipulate, sometimes our alcohol levels are higher than we really want them to be. But in 2011, with some exceptions, they're right in line with what we want. Um, So this, I think it's a really interesting wine. Yeah, I I was expecting this to be really ripe and alcoholic, uh, not based on uh, your wines, but based on domestic Grenache Blanc. And I really like that it's it's refreshing, it's mineral, it uh, it tastes almost salty, um, which makes you want to keep drinking more and more. I, I think the other thing that it does is, is um, it can really pair well with food. I, I think all of our wines. My wife will say that we don't make cocktail wines, and what she means is she's not. She wants wines that go with a table of food on them, and and the lower alcohol and the higher acid, I think, really helps that. All right. So what's the next wine you brought? Next uh, wine is called uh, Improbable Chardonnay. Um, I call it Improbable because uh, all of our Chardonnay at this stage, with the exception of this vineyard, is very close to the Pacific Ocean for cooler climates. We have two vineyards in Anderson Valley um, where we struggle even on a warm year to ripen the the, the grapes. And on a cold year, last year, for instance, one of the vineyards did not ripen. Um, it is. I love it because it's ungrafted, which means that they didn't cut off... What is, so they didn't. They, they didn't they, grafting is where you cut off the rootstock and um, you put it on American roots. And the owner of this vineyard in '78, when he planted it, didn't do it planting correctly. So he left left it on its own uh, rootstocks. And I think what it does is it, it does two things that are really interesting to me. Whenever Chardonnay's on its own rootstock, it has an ever so slight Sauvignon Blanc, like there's a little tropical fruit thing going on that I find across our ungrafted Chardonnay vineyards. Um, the other thing I think it does, I think that there's n- no one's really experimented with the impact of acid on rootstock. 
um, if you get like find a rose, uh, someone who farms roses, they have some of them have these really weird patterns of where they put soil back underneath, like around the base of the rose bush, and then pull it out based on the time of year and stuff. And we've been experimenting with that on our vines, and it seems to a- impact the acid level. Like in a very natural way, like you'll get a, a lower pH and higher acid just by doing this hoeing pattern. And I think um, maybe the, the ungrafted vines naturally had more acid. And again, we're so focused on acid because we think it's just it's, it's what makes a wine in California. Every once in a while, you talk to someone from California and they'll talk about ripeness. And like, it's California. Things get ripe, you know, 30, 29 out of every 30 years. It's not Burgundy, or it's not what Burgundy was 30 years ago. Um, but on the acid level, People add acid all the time, and we don't want to do it. So. Yeah, I call I call acid the the sommelier secret because it makes us look so good. If you have a wine that has high acid, it makes the food taste more delicious. It makes your your mouth water. It makes you want to drink more of it. So I always go for high acid wines in the restaurants. I I, I totally agree. I think that I uh, it's weird when you talk to a consumer because they when they, you talk about acid endlessly, they have I don't think they even understand the context. But when you talk about a chef. Like vinegar is vinegar. Part of the reason you use it is because it's acidic, and and um, people don't don't have that context in their in their vocabulary. Uh, and I do think a, a nice high acid wine can make a dish that was otherwise just interesting, but like the two can like sing together. It sometimes becomes like poetic. Well, a few years ago, I don't think I would have said I love a California Chardonnay, but I absolutely love that wine that Thank is delicious uh, what do you have next next is a uh, coupe d'or which is cup of gold in french it is marsan Roussan blend um 50 50 we do wacky experiments uh with a lot of our whites where we leave them on the skins but this one we make uh all three whites we actually did today we make in a very traditional style um so we bring the fruit in uh we press it we have a really old-fashioned wood basket press and um all of my interns will tell you that it doesn't work very well, so we end up doing a lot of foot stomping um, to try to get more juice out of the grapes. And then barrel fermented. And uh, on the Roussan and this one, we try to balance. Marsan to me can be kind of fat, but I like the thickness it adds to the wine. So we try to balance that with the Roussan having a lot of honeysuckle. And I also get peach on this wine occasionally. Mm. So. so this is kind of a classic blend, and you vinify classically, but... You know, I guess you don't see too many producers in, in California do things in such a classic way. So it seems avant-garde and, and renegade in, in its way, even though it has its roots in this really historic tradition. I think um, one of the things I've figured out about the wine business, whenever anybody says something's new, it's actually really old. So I collect old winemaking books, and I have a book from the 1890s. For a while, there's this uh, this something called submerged uh, cap fermentation, where you you put like a metal grate or whatever in a red wine while it's fermenting, so the grape skins don't float up. And uh, like ten years ago, it was all of the rage in California, and people were like, "It's brand new," blah blah blah. And I look at my book, and they had a way they have instructions on how to make it from it was in the 1890s using word slats that you could push down the grape skins, and you don't have to punch them down then. So I, I don't think there's a lot of new stuff out there. What I and that's why I like to read these old books. Um, because I think you can learn like techniques where they didn't have all the, they didn't have corrective measures really, like they didn't have a bunch of technology to make up for the fact they made a mistake. So they tried other things to make the wine as beautifully as they could. Well, it's just like the the term organic. There was no need for organic wine before any additives or chemicals were were created to to make wine. Correct. So it seems like a, a new trend, but it's the oldest way of making wine. Um, so I have a little surprise for you. I actually brought a wine for us to uh, blind taste here. 
Um, it's a, uh, well, I'm not going to say anything about it. I want you to, uh, to let me know what you think. I will say that this is potentially something you've never had before. So, so don't feel like you need to make too much of an accurate guess, but I just want to hear what your observations are. I always think blind tasting is a, a wonderful exercise. I have a, a tasting group that's, um, the funny thing for us is it's some of the very um, mainstream grapes everybody gets confused on. Like, I think we pretty much, over the last know, seven or eight years, one, at least once a year we'll taste Chardonnays, and who's ever doing it, not everybody will get that they're Chardonnay, which is always surprising to me. It's got a great nose. Um, I actually think I have had this wine before, but I can't place the context of it. I don't remember. Uh, I always, I think for me, what I really like in noses is, is uh, what's really interesting and kind of, um, I think perfumey might be the wrong word, but there's something going on. Can you uh, describe, because they can't see this, but can you describe the color of this wine? So this would be uh, probably classified as an orange wine. It's a very, very uh, dark, maybe not orange, but dark golden color. Uh, it, it either saw maybe skin time or a little oxidation would also give you that color. Um, but I would, I would guess it was skin time and skin contact in this case. And what are your top two blind wine tasting tricks or techniques? <laughs> um, for, to actually taste the wine or when you're, are you having someone else taste them and you want to mess them up? <laughs> no, messing people up is the easy part, but I think the hard part is uh, f- trying to figure something out. So if someone was going to be doing a blind tasting party at home or a blind tasting with friends, what are, what are some techniques uh, that you might... Across the board in our group, uh, it, just say immediately taste, smell the wine, taste it, don't think about it, and write down your gut. That's so important. And I don't, I, I, of course, now I'm pondering this because I want to figure it out which will make me not figure it out. Um, across the board, whatever my first note is when I taste um, blind, that's the one that, if it's going to be right, is gonna, it will be that first one. Um, I think maybe when you blind taste, you start falling into being overly analytical, um, and instead you should stop and enjoy the wine and think about that enjoyment, and then try to, if you're trying to figure it out, try to remember where you've had it before. And I don't, I don't know what this wine is, but it's really interesting. I think stopping to slow down and think about the enjoyment is great advice for for everything in life. Um, so this is actually something we pour by the glass at Amphora. It's a super obscure wine. Um, it's actually from the country of Georgia, and it's an Amphora-aged wine from the super rare, super indigenous grape to Georgia called Chinuri, which... Uh, I don't think is planted in uh, the Napa Valley. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure you're right. <laughs> um, but uh, I, you know, I went to go visit uh, Mr. Yago. He only grows chinuri and makes half of it with skin contact. This is the skin contact one, as you said, and half of it without all aged in amphora clay pots uh, in Georgia. But uh, I think this is a, a really exciting wine. And um, certainly they've been, they've been doing this for a long time. In Georgia, they have over 8,000 consecutive vintages of wow. wine. So That's great. Quite, quite a long time. Well, Jared, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate uh, you coming by to speak to us today. Um, and thank you for listening to In the Drink. I hope you learned something or at the very least now have an idea of what you want to drink tonight. Thanks so much to my guest again, Jared. You are you are the man, and uh, we love your wines. Um, 
and to listeners, you can always find archived episodes of In the Drink on heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes as a podcast. Remember, we're live every Wednesday at 10 a.m., and if you have questions for the program, you can call in live at 718-497-2128 or email us at info at heritageradionetwork.org. See you next week, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.